Hey everybody and welcome back to another edition of the Open Forum podcast. Today we have with us Dr. Matthew Wilecki. He's a former assistant professor or almost former assistant professor in the Department of Geological Sciences at the University of Alabama who completed his PhD in geochemistry with a multitude of peer-reviewed publications and as an earth science professor there are a few better people placed to speak on our topic of today climate change or alarmism uh, hopefully that's something we can delve into a little bit further and maybe shed some light on and potentially if time allows uh, DEI diversity uh, inclusion and uh, I forget I always forget what the E is equity equity that's the one that, that we just don't have enough of it see this is why I forget it there you go uh, and uh, how that factors into some of the decisions that have been made surrounding the climate issue whether that be at the university level or with um uh stg goals in corporations and and whatnot but listen matthew enough from me why don't you take a couple minutes introduce yourself and then we'll dive on in yeah thanks sunny um so i was originally born in in wrocław in poland um and so i'm a polish immigrant and as all good polish folks do we immigrated to chicago and illinois and eventually i grew up in fresno california my father was a professor at cal state university fresno and so um, I've always kind of wanted to be an academic. Um, I used to have a joke. My dad would ask me, like, what do you want to be? I said, Dad, I want to work like you do because I don't want a real job. <laughs> and, you know, I, he kind of made his own hours and he kind of have that freedom in academia. So it's something I always wanted to do. And um, I did a, a, a bachelor's degree in biochemistry and cellular biology at UC San Diego. And then I went on to do a PhD in earth science, um, specializing in isotope geochemistry at UC Los Angeles, UCLA. And uh, my postdoc there a little bit after that and um, ended up taking a tenure track position at University of Alabama in 2016 and um, have been here ever since. Um, you know, my primary research is geochronology, which is dating of, of rocks and figuring out the age of things. Um, we do that through through this technique of isotope geochemistry. And um, I've never really worked in climate science per se, and I never really worked for oil exploration per se. So I felt like I could take an objective look since I didn't really have any vested interests on either side. No dog in the fight, I, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so that I could kind of take an objective look and, and start to to maybe state some opinions that others maybe were afraid to state. And so that's kind of how I got into discussing climate um, and to discussing climate change on social media. And I think part of my radar for issues with DEI also comes from the fact that my parents grew up in communist Poland and they, you know, always instilled in me that the act that the, the campus was this bastion of freedom and there was, you know, this free exchange of ideas, we're allowed to discuss anything and everything, and we're going to go have a beer afterwards. And there's nothing off the table, we have to be challenged in our ideas, because we need to know why we believe in them. And the more you're challenged, the more you understand whether or not you really have a good, good feeling for your idea and good, good support for your ideas. And so that's part of what I saw as a problem with DEI. And so that's part of what I've been speaking out again, about as well. It's interesting that you bring up the comparisons that your parents had to uh communist poland um there's something i've been thinking a lot about recently um i don't know if you've ever seen it it's an interview with a former uh, kgb agent um yuri bezmanov it took place 
well, I think in the 80s. And he talks about how what Russia's big plan is wasn't the secret agent spy going around and sabotaging this, that, and the rest of it in the US. It was the slow degradation of morals and ideology and thinking in the US. And one of the things that he stated in that interview is penetrating the universities and changing the thought process slowly because they don't need to change the people who were the adults at that point in time. They wanted to change the thinking of the next generation and planting those seeds as to the thought processes of what's going to happen for the generation after that as well. So it was it was a slow burner. And when we compare that to what's happening today, where you have university professors who, as you've mentioned, are self-censoring, who feel like they're going to lose their positions or lose their funding if they speak out rather than the position where it was when your father was a professor, where you could say what you needed to be said, and then you could debate it and discuss it. It's, you know, we've jumped straight into it on the DEI stuff, but it's a massive danger when you can no longer express free thought without the fear of massive, potentially career-ending repercussions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's a famous quote actually from Adolf Hitler who said that if you can control the youth, you can control the future. And um, yeah. it's it's and one thing is is that when you do this in these small increments, like you say, it's it's difficult to really pinpoint one thing. You just kind of slowly work your way into this ideological kind of viewpoint. And as faculty members, especially as assistant professors, we just kind of check the box. We don't have tenure. We're a little worried about rocking the boat. And so, okay, I have to, you know, take this stance, even though I don't agree with it, I'll write the paragraph, I'll use the buzzwords, and I'll just jump through the hoops, and I don't really consider the long-term implications. And they just, there's an extra box every once in a while, and before you know it, you know, there's ideas that can't be discussed, there's, there's things that can't be questioned. And the fact that, so I already knew my position was, I was vacating my position, and so I thought, okay, well, you know, I, I might as well speak out a little bit now about a couple of the things, primarily the stance on climate and the and the negative consequences of DEI. And when I did that, I I instantly had faculty members in my own university openly calling me a racist online through social media. They linked me okay. to some scrolling, some chalk scrollings about some anti-Semitic things that I think Kanye was saying. Oh, and somehow somebody had scrolled. Yeah, somebody had like put some chalk markings on campus. So they linked me to that. Death and it really showed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it was clear to me that, and I didn't, you know, all I said was, I think there's possibly negative consequences to these ideological stances and the fact that we can't have open discussions without repercussions. And like, like you said, very valid repercussions, possibly losing tenure, possibly not getting tenure, possibly losing all your funding, which essentially means you're dead in the water as a, as an academic in an R1 institution, we basically sink or swim by federal funding. And so it really proved the point to me that I was right, that if you just question 
you know, merely questioning. I didn't say it's right or wrong. I was very clear that I, I, I wanted to pick my words very clearly and say, I think it's well-intentioned. I think the idea of a diverse and open community that's inclusive and equal in terms of opportunity is a great idea. But if, if you have good intentions and bad consequences, you should be able to reevaluate that and have an open discussion and that, and, and, you know, change things. That's how scientists work. We come up with hypotheses. We test those hypotheses. Usually they don't work. We tweak it. We go back and we test it again. And so the fact that you can't even discuss negative consequences, it really hurts the academic nature of the, of, of the whole community. And we really, we survive and, and thrive on collaboration, coming together, exchanging ideas, people from different backgrounds, butting heads and saying, no, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. Let me tell you why you're wrong. You know, and, and the fact that people are so hesitant now and they walk on eggshells, they self-censor is, is, is an absolutely negative outcome for what academia was really built to, to support. I, I wholeheartedly agree. So on that note of not wanting to self-censor. What was your ultimately so controversial, so taboo view on the climate aspect then? You know, uh, at the end of the day, the, the world's about to end by 2030, right? What was it that you said that was so dastardly that it, it led to all of this? It really started with COVID. And I started, we were on Zoom and students would kind of hang out a little longer. I started asking kids longer term questions, more about their life. We'd kind of, I think they felt a little more comfortable. They're sitting in their pajamas in their dorm room. Everybody's left the Zoom, it's me and them. And I had multiple students tell me they never wanted to have children or they would feel guilty if they had children. I'd ask them why, you know? And they would tell me that's because of the climate. They, they fear that the planet's gonna end. And I started to really question, you know, what's the message we're putting out there, especially as the earth scientists, you know, I think, I feel like it's our realm to teach people about the state of the planet, which the climate is part of that. And so I started to quiz my students. I have 110 students in these early classes and I'd ask them whether or not they thought that more or less people were dying from natural disasters and how confident were they in their answer. And they would all significantly, they would all say significantly more people are dying which is these opposite, we've dropped that by something like 97%. And they were very confident in their answer. And so I really started to realize that we, we as the earth science community are allowing all of our students to have the exactly upside down view of the state of the planet, instead of being optimistic and realizing that the human condition has gotten a lot better, less people are dying from natural disasters, less people die from famine and malnutrition. Something like 2 billion people have been raised out of poverty in the last few decades. You know, there's a, there's a huge amount of positive things to look at in terms of the human condition. And these students all had the most negative outlook. Their anxiety was through the roof. Obviously COVID was adding to that, but you know, they were considering not having families anymore, even though they had four or five brothers and sisters and they were excited about big families a few years ago. And I just, this is a terrible way to motivate young people to be good stewards of the planet is to tell them the planet's going to end at some point soon. Why would you take care of the planet if you think it's going to end? That doesn't make any sense. It's, it's, it takes a terrible toll on their mental, mental health and nobody was saying anything. And if you said something, you were instantly called a, a denier, right? Or a heretic, which has links to Holocaust denial. You know, totally disingenuous way of shutting down an argument. 
it's funny. I was having that same discussion with someone a few weeks ago who is an absolute diamond fella. And I think he'd make a fantastic father. And it really saddened me to see that his reasoning that he no longer wanted to have children was this idea that we're a plague on the planet and we're destroying the planet and everything that we do or every, every child less or every person less is only a, a, a good thing and it's only going to lead to a good outcome. And at that point, I kind of had to explain to him what the Malthusian thinking was behind all of this and how this is an idea from, I think it's this late 1700s. Uh, I think so, yeah. And it was this idea that we need to lessen the amount of people because of the uh, amount of resources available. And only through doing that are we going to maintain the populace that we have. And actually, factually, when you look at it, it went the other way because humans are fucking ingenuitive things. And when we had more people and more mouths to feed, all of a sudden, people were looking at, how to accommodate this. And then we got the harbor process and the harbor boss process. And we have what we now have with nitrogen fertilizers, which have their own issues as well with soil quality, not the gas issue that's being touted, but the soil quality itself and the nutrition in the soil. That's another issue that if addressed correctly, I think we as humans can work to address. But this idea that more people are dying and the uh, weather reports that we were getting of the land being on fire in the summer just gone yet you look 10 years before and it was hotter it's really bizarre to see just how many people have bought hook line and sinker this idea that no no we're just a plague no no we're just a bad thing we need to get rid of us we you know almost like lemmings falling off the edge of a cliff yeah, absolutely. It's anti-human. I mean, it's there's no other way to put it. And if you want to solve the world's problems, the worst way to do it is to tell people that they can't solve the world problems if because we have too many people. Hmm. And who picks who leaves and stays? I mean, Michael Mann, Jane Goodall are talking about one billion person carrying capacity. So that's out of eight of us, seven of us have to go. Where Jeez. I don't I don't know how we decide that, but this is scary stuff to me and such a also downer in terms of just having a positive outlook on life. Humans are so ingenuitive. I mean, we live in temperatures of minus 30, you know, C up to 45 C and we thrive in them and we figure out ways to make things work. And I agree with you that there's nothing that we're going to do that won't have a consequence on the planet. That's just the way it goes. If a beaver makes a dam, there's going to be like a hundred hedgehogs that die because they get flooded behind the beaver dam. There's nothing in nature that when we do something doesn't have a consequence. This idea of harmony is absolutely absurd. What we can do though, is we can mitigate those, right? And so what has happened with the climate debate is that they've thrown all their eggs in one basket, which is greenhouse gases. And they go after one industry. Well, now in Netherlands too, because they really haven't been going after the energy industry much. They've been going after the agricultural industry, which in the US we're the opposite. We go after the fossil fuel industry and we don't really go after the agricultural industry. But they throw all their eggs in one basket, which means that 
you don't actually mitigate the problems that you're talking about. So like you said, nitrogen does have issues with the soil. It also, when it gets into the waterways, you can have eutrophication in the waterways and anoxic events, but we have really good technologies. And if we spent some more money in research and development, we could mitigate those problems pretty easily, especially with what the Netherlands is complaining about, about ammonia and dung from fertilizers. We in the US, we'd buy that stuff in a second. Almost everybody spreads manure on their lawn so that they can get a nice green lawn because it's we need that nitrogen, we need that organic material. So in, in a high concentration in one area, it could be a problem, but that's a, that's a simple solution as opposed to trying to completely rebuild an energy grid and reduce people's ability to move around or travel. You know, so it's just, this is, this is really an anti-human endeavor to me. And that seems like the worst way to try to tell people again, to have a positive outlook. And, you know, I, I just, I've got two young kids. The last thing I want them to do is grow up in a world where there's, everybody has a negative outlook on their future. You know, that just seems such like a, such a mental health draw to me that, you know, we'll, we can deal with our problems and we will. And there's not to say that there won't be problems. There will be, and it will have to come up with solutions and there'll be hardships, but to pretend that all of it will go away if we just stop emitting one gas is absurd. That it all, aside from the Netherlands, what you said there at the end, that it all comes down to this one gas, carbon dioxide, baffles the mind. Because if we were to look at this scientifically, then no one's talking about water vapor, which water vapor has a larger greenhouse effect. I think 70% of the greenhouse effect is due to water vapor, something bizarre. You like know, that. what's interesting is, is when I was taking atmospheric physics at UCLA long ago, we were told that it was on the order of 90%. Oh. And what you've seen in the last decade or decade and a half is this slow decrease of the effect from water vapor and this increase in the effect of greenhouse gases, because uh, particularly carbon dioxide because folks were really pushing back on the original idea saying, wait a minute, water vapor is 90 something percent of the greenhouse effect. In fact, it was 90 to 95% when I learned it. And now I've heard it all the way down to 60%. And so this is part of this idea of settled science, right? The science is settled and yet these numbers keep changing and varying all the time. And they're the essential numbers to basically all of what we're discussing. So um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it, the water vapor is the 500 pound gorilla in the room cloud yeah. formation water vapor um, that's the big one absolutely and it's and then solar output would be another one and then long-term ocean circulation patterns yeah. these are all things we have not modeled very well and so this is one of the arguments i say look mo you know models are my, my my advisor used to tell me a, a good line from an old statistician that you know all models are wrong but some are useful that's nice. I like that. I like that. And it's, I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that has been used to massively manipulate perception, these climate models. And even when you reverse engineer them with data that we have, if you take a model from today and try to use it with known data from something that happened 20, 30 years ago, the models still don't add up to what was then seen at that point in time. So if we know for a fact that that model can't accommodate 
what happened where we have all the data how can people still hold that up as an, an example of where the planet's going to go yeah so this is where things get really complicated because if you if you do some adjustments to the data then the models do hindcast pretty well if you don't adjust make certain adjustments to data i would say they're in the lower part of the 95% confidence interval but again i you know predicting some warming i think is very different than predicting the effects of that warming on the planet i think we all accept that the planet's been warming i think it's essentially been warming since the last glacial maximum there's some hiccups here and there and ups and downs there was a little cooling after the Holocene thermal maximum, but if you just kind of smooth all that out, you've essentially been warming since something like 18,000 years ago. And so um, the question is, is whether or not that degree or two, what are the, what are going to be the effects of that? And we've seen a degree already. And the claims were that we would see things like increasing hurricanes and um, increasing wildfires. We don't see that in the data. That, that, that this hasn't actually panned out. So well, there's one thing about climate models that they're, I think they're decent at predicting the temperature, which I can argue actually that there is no such thing as a global temperature on a planet that has, uh, you know, something like 60 degrees Celsius variation day to day, maybe 80 degrees variation day to day. Um, but they do a decent job at the temperature. But the problem is, is that that rise in temperature doesn't necessarily correlate to all of these catastrophic effects that they were originally planning for or arguing for that we needed all this policy change. And so there's a distinction that needs to be made about temperature change and catastrophic events, human suffering, cost of natural disasters, right? These are essentially the things that we're really worried about, agricultural production, we're not seeing these catastrophic events that 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 were originally predicted, and I think that's just a, a sign again of human ingenuity. You said something there about us not seeing an increase in wildfires and not seeing an increase in in hurricanes and, and natural disasters. This is a discussion that I've had um, with people in in day to day life on multiple occasions now they always come back with we are seeing more wildfires there are more wildfires in let's say california or the wildfires are, are becoming worse and 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 more and more people are being affected now one of the things you said right at the beginning is we've seen a massive decrease in the amount of people that have been affected or died as a result of natural disasters but this idea that natural disasters are becoming more intense they're happening more frequently etc 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 you're saying that Mm, that's not the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Yeah, so so there's two things there. So, for example, California wildfires, those have increased relatively dramatically. That was partially due to a drought, partially due to people moving into areas that would naturally burn. For example, the Paradise Fire that happened not too long ago, north or just, just northeast uh, of Chico, California. This was started by a PG&E tower that, that a tree limb hit during some high winds and started the fire. But that was also a town that had grown dramatically in the last few decades. And there was a lot of push about not letting fires get anywhere near the town. So there was a lot of underbrush. So there's a lot of mismanagement of land that is adding to these. 
But if we look at, so there's a one major group that looks at this stuff that's called the Center for Research in the Epidemiology of Disasters. They're out of Brussels in Belgium. Um, Catchy and title. They have, yeah. And they're a health group and they're, they're biologists. And so they're looking at epidemiological effects, right? So they're looking at disease and things like that. But in order to do that, they keep a really accurate record of disasters. And they've had this record going since something like the late 90s. And if we look from the late 90s, we don't see an increase in the number of what they would consider disasters. But at that same time, we do see more people are affected by those disasters, but that's due to population growth in places like floodplains. For example, Florida here in the United States, tons of people have moved to Florida in the last couple of decades. And so the same size hurricane that would have passed in 2000, when it comes across in 2023, it does a lot more damage, it affects a lot more people, but the number of deaths have gone down dramatically, right? That's due to early warning systems and, and healthcare and, and our ability to build structures that are, that are safer. But it's clear that humans are dealing with these problems pretty well. So I think that if we strictly look at the number of disasters, we have not seen an increase in the last 25 years in fact, there's a slight decrease. I don't think statistically speaking, you could say that, um, but it's a, there's no trend. It's a flat line. And the number of people affected is greater because population has grown, especially in, in areas that are prone to this, but the number of deaths has declined. One of the other things um, that I've read as well is, yes, to all of the above, and in addition, the equipment that we're using is more sensitive. So we're able to pick up more things that would have also otherwise gone unnoticed, whether that be earthquakes or uh, hurricanes, because the sensitivity of the equipment is increased, right? Yeah, that's a great point. So let me, so part of what I post a lot about is from the, the United Nations Office of Disaster Risk Reduction, UNDRR. And they take the data that I was just telling you about from about 98, but they expand it all the way out to the 60s. And then if you do that, you see this steep increase all the way to about 98, and then everything goes flat. And the reason is, is exactly what you just said, is if there was a flood in the Congo in 1963, nobody in Belgium recorded it anywhere. And so they never had that data. Now we have all these sensitive instruments, we have satellites, the world is essentially interconnected yeah. You know, even rural villages will have an internet source or be able to get their information out. So there's this severe underreporting that occurs in the data that's previous to the 90s. And all of the climate alarmists will claim, look at this increase from the 60s. And so my answer to that is, okay, well, I think there's a there's a bias there, then a reporting bias that that happens. But also, let's just assume that they're right. That means that in the last 25 years, when more CO2 was added than in any 25 years prior ever, that the natural disasters have flatlined. And so that would argue to me that there was a correlative effect, even if they're right, and I'm, I'm wrong about their underreporting in the previous, but there's no causal effect, because if it's a causal effect, the time period when we added the most CO2 ever, we should see a response in so in, exactly, in the extreme weather. And when we say causation, we say we need to have a reproducible and measurable response in some factor from the change of another factor. And we don't see that. I, that to me is the, is the death nail for a causal effect of increasing CO2 and extreme weather events. Okay. 
I want to come back come back to that idea of increasing CO two, um, but you mentioned there the UN their usage of data, and one of the other places that the UN will get its data from is from the IPCC, right? The IPCC and UN are touting that temperatures have been dramatically increasing, and that we've seen that the classic hockey stick graph that everyone who's looked into climate will have been aware of will have seen how can we account for that then because it, it they're able to visually represent it graphically that there's been this massive increase in temperature or or is there more to the story there that isn't necessarily being fleshed out in a small graph yeah there's absolutely more to the story so the the vast majority of that graph the very first usually it will go back something like ten thousand years or so the first 9,750 9, years or 850 years will be from proxy data. And so that's kind of what I do. So we look at things like oxygen isotopes or carbon isotopes, and we can make an estimate of what the temperature was around that time period. And then the last 150 years is measured data. The problem is, is our proxy data, we're, it's really good to use proxies to see how things were changing relative to each other. But it's very difficult for us to identify a number, this oxygen isotope ratio goes with this amount of degrees of surface temperature. That's very difficult. We have a big range in that, but it's a really powerful tool because we can say, look, things were cooling or things were warming because we can see it over a relative time period. And we think that the ratio as it changes does tell us something about the change in temperature. To take modern measurements where you're actually measuring the temperature of the atmosphere and then splice those together and to make your hockey stick, is absolutely unscientific. This is what a lot of the people in the original congressional uh, testimonies in 2008 with Michael Mann were pushing back against. And we're saying, look, you can't do this as you can't splice a proxy data where it's really used for relative change and assign it an absolute number and then put things together. Furthermore, they've essentially erased warming periods in the past. And if you look at the first IPCC report that came out in 1990, there is a clear Holocene thermal maximum that's very warm. There's a medieval warming period that's very warm. And both of those things are essentially erased. And this kind of goes back to climate gate emails where they're talking about this is very inconvenient for us. It'd be better if we could get rid of this warming. And as a geologist, it's remarkable because almost everywhere we look on land, we see that it was much warmer 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 years ago, sometimes even in the medieval warming period, which is much, which is much more recent. And yet when they take that data and then they mix it in with ocean data, they take ocean cores, they essentially saturate the data set and they basically squeeze that original blip of heat down. And then it, it creates the hockey stick seems much more apparent. So I would argue that it's very unscientific. I think it's dishonest. To, to do that, um, it's it's become the hallmark of the climate debate. So they're so invested now that they can't admit it. Mm. But um, it's it's definitely what I would call scientifically irresponsible. Where could one find that data then? Uh, that if that data still exists, and and one of the dangers here is 
what we've spoke about at the beginning with the control of language and and self-censorship and those sorts of things that if this data exists and this data is being outright ignored what will happen in five to ten years is that data will eventually be dead and buried or okay maybe a bit longer than five to ten years as your hair's not grayed out yet so there's people like yourself who who know where that can be found but that is something that can happen and and people might think I'm, I'm maybe exaggerating a little bit but those who are familiar with uh hong kong and china will know that children in hong kong and being taught that hong kong was always part of mainland china and there was no british occupation so if they're able to do it in real time now despite the fact that we've got the internet and can find things I wouldn't put it past people if they're already manipulating the representation in international committees and panels on climate change. Where can we find that data? It exists. There's actually a few papers that were published in very prestigious journals that show the how this data was manipulated, how it's you you lose the variability when you splice a whole bunch of it together and you kind of reduce the noise. Um, these are statistical tricks, essentially. And it exists, but the climate community tends to ignore those. Um, they they tend to claim that there was valid reasons why certain amounts of data that you know, biased the the the, the data side. in a different yeah in in towards a different uh, path, you know, especially towards less warming. They would they 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 come up with valid reasons to try to reject that data. And so it's out there. Um, it tends to be ignored. I try to keep it alive by reposting it a bunch and exposing people to it uh, more and more. I try to show the the congressional testimonies online and things like that. Um, but you're right that the the move, the big push right now, is to suppress any counterpoints because these ideas are dangerous and. This is such an existential threat that even if there was some manipulation of the data, the ends just justify the means. It's you know, it's worth it. And I argue that scientific integrity is more important, and that you know the the truth will rise to the surface if we all just debate it and discuss it and have it out in the open. Um, the the claim is that you know, and this is claims by IPCC, and this is claims by UN and WEF that look, we know that sometimes the data has been manipulated and adjusted and maybe not always in the right way, but the ends justify the means and this is too much of a threat for us to sit back and not push it. It's almost comical. I think the noble lie is acceptable in situations where you've got kids, I've got a little one, he's uh, a little over a year, but when he's a little bit older, of course I'm going to tell him if he's not a good boy, Santa's not going to give him his prezzies. Okay, there's no Santa, but that's a noble lie I'll accept. But a, a the idea of a noble lie that drives people to such desperate circumstances or such dark places that they no longer want to have families or you know, provide back into the world or feel like they're a plague on the planet and produce such, you know, I know social media has added to the mental health crisis, but you're damn sure that the planet global warming whole debate and climate change has added to that mental health crisis as well. You can see it in the people protesting with how crazy they, they get about things. And 
gluing themselves to the roads, uh, <laughs> as we've seen a couple of times. But I think one of the darker aspects to that is if there is that level of manipulation of the data, there's also an acknowledgement that the situation isn't that dire from the people doing the manipulation and they're willing to let people suffer. And this goes back to what you were saying earlier about the control of the population where people were calling for essentially the eradication of uh, seven and eight people. Um, it's despicable. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, you can see it actually through the UN. Um, John Kerry had a famous speech. He's the UN secretary. He was the UN uh, a representative from the US. And he made a, a, a speech about no fossil fuel investments in, um, in African nations. And so I lived in Mogadishu, Somalia for a year in 1986. Wow. I actually went there to second grade. And one of my most clear memories was every night when I would go to sleep, I would hear the next door neighbor. He was a doctor. He had this nice generator. We'd lose power almost every night and his generator would kick in. So I'd fall asleep to the hum of this diesel generator every night. And I really saw the effects of the lack of reliable, cheap energy and what it can do to a population. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely, it's, they claim the moral high ground. They, you know, they, they think they're noble. And yet what they're essentially telling so many people on the planet is that you need to suffer for longer because we've already put out this much CO2 and it's so bad. So you won't be able to do it. And we'll just keep you in poverty for a little longer. And then maybe we'll bring you some solar panels at some point, I think, or, maybe. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, it's just, I, I just see it as, um, it's just such a negative outlook as opposed to encouraging people and getting their wealth up. And the, the, one of the consequences of bringing people out of poverty is they start to think long-term. They actually start to make plans for 10 years down the road, 50 years down the road. They think about their kid's future. If you don't have that, if you're, if you're one of the 2.1 billion people on the planet that don't have access to clean drinking water today, you're not thinking a decade down the road. You're not thinking about what the temperature on the planet's going to be in 2100, right? And we've, we've, we've taken this weird aspect or this weird kind of savior sense. We're going to be the saviors for you folks, but you're going to have to suffer for a little longer, but we know what's best. And so we're just going to keep you in poverty for a little while. And then eventually when we're ready, we'll bring you the renewables that we've built. This is very analogous to the DEI arguments where I see DEI offices that are all, all white people and are they're telling all the minorities about how they're going to protect them and save them. And I talk to these minority students and they're like, we don't want those people trying to speak for us or save us. We're more than capable, probably more capable than they are of doing it ourselves. Why are they doing this? And so it's this weird mentality we've gotten into where we're the saviors. You know, the Western world has become the saviors of the planet and of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And nobody wants us to do the saving. No, it's, 
that movie by the Matt Stone and Trey Parker, Team America, World Police, <laughs> kind of sums it up pretty well, right? How everyone thought of Team America in comparison to the rest of the world, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, it is that in a nutshell, this idea that we have to go out there and we have to be the people to police this and to enforce this and to make sure everything goes in one direction. And it's funny what you mentioned there about uh, your time in Somalia, because um, when I was younger, visiting family in, in India and being in the village there, that is something that used to happen all the time as well, uh, where the electricity would go and my cousin would have to go and put the generator on and it was diesel powered, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I hadn't ever thought of it like that, but it is crazy to see the effects that the, or I never thought of it like that then, the effects of no access to affordable electricity can have on the development. And what you're saying there of if people are worried about getting clean drinking water, then they can't think ahead. To put it into perspectives that someone listening to this in Western civilization might appreciate if you are buried in debt and your paycheck is just helping you make ends meet, you're not able to plan for the future. You're barely able to save for a holiday or you're not able to save for a house or anything like that. You are just working on getting to the next month and trying to make sure your paycheck makes it to the end of the next month. There are people that have that, but not with debt, with getting their hands on clean drinking water, with being able to afford their bills of energy or getting electricity even to do the basics. And that's really where one of the biggest issues lies. And you mentioned solar panels there as well. Um, you also mentioned earlier in the podcast that we've raised around 2 billion people out of poverty. One of the things that goes hand in hand with that is the decrease in price of power per kilojoule per watt at whatever energy uh, equivalent you want to put it into. And this is something that uh, when I spoke to Senator Malcolm Roberts about, he mentioned this. And people think that with renewables, we can just replace the fossil fuel industry, the hydrocarbon fuel industry one-to-one -one with these relatively speaking expensive solar panels that are inefficient or wind generated power that's also relatively speaking inefficient what what if anything can be done then if you have people standing in the middle of the un saying no we're not going to invest in hydrocarbon fuels you know this energy dense thing we're going to give you these solar panels or we're going to give you these wind farms yeah, I think so. You're absolutely right that there's two reasons why it can't be done. You can't replace the our fossil fuel dependence right now with wind and solar. One is the reliability aspect. The other is we almost don't have the geologic mineral capacity to to do that. Um, so it's never going to be the baseload power, right? The 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 underlying power that's always there that's not dealing with surges and things. Um, there's there's just there's just no way to do that um and then the the what was your second question i lost my train of thought so uh, basically what i was getting at uh, in a short way to put it is that energy density and the difference between hydrocarbon fuels yeah. versus the renewable energy sources that we currently have yeah that's have. right so yeah they're that's not right. withstanding yeah 
So that's one thing that we've seen in the evolution of humans is we've gone from low density fuels to high density fuels. We started with wood and dung. I, I go to Tibet a lot and do research there. They still cook with yak dung. That's that's the primary cooking source. It's terrible because you'll see all these kids with these black snot coming out of their nose because it's very, there's tons of smoke that comes off of it. But we've progressed from that to eventually coal. We were using really kind of low density coals, like, like things like lignite. Then we eventually found that there was bituminous coal and anthracite. We moved up and then we found natural gas and we found oil. And so we've always been moving in this direction of higher density fuels because a higher density fuels means you can have a smaller ecological footprint, but still get the power, right? With the goal, I think, or I argue, is to have a small ecological footprint, footprint, but still provide the power necessary to bring people up from poverty and provide the infrastructure necessary to allow people to think long term. And if we move towards wind and solar, what we're doing is we're moving backwards, we're moving to something that has a lower power density, significantly lower than fossil fuels, and also has a much larger ecological footprint. And so, you know, if we if we're concerned with things like species loss, I would argue that a fox doesn't care so much about a degree or two of, of temperature change. But if you take away their habitat, that's going to be a big problem. And so if, if, you know, solar and wind have great applications, and I think they're going to be important in rural applications and, and for local use in California and things, put solar on your roof and you can reduce your power bill dramatically and make your money back in eight or 10 or 12 years. But uh, the idea that this is going to somehow supplant the baseload power I think is crazy. And the, the ecological footprint of that, the amount of raw materials needed, would be would be astronomical. And so I'm a big proponent of nuclear energy, because if we continue that human evolution from low density fuels to high density fuels, then uranium blows everything out of the water, yeah. or thorium salt reactors as well. We're talking about very small amounts of material, very long lasting carbon free. Obviously, there's waste involved, and we have to think about um, um, radiation. But you know the the modern reactors are very are very safe they're almost meltdown proof um we've had these kind of irrational fears after things like chernobyl and fukushima but if the if the truth is is that millions of people are dying from fossil fuel combustion every year then the loss of life from those disasters that are kind of far and few between, maybe one every couple of decades, that's pretty manageable in comparison if we're if we accept that multiple millions of folks are dying every year. So I'm a big proponent for nuclear to do that. One of the interesting facts about nuclear, I can't remember the exact number, but I think it's below a hundred people have died in yeah in recorded history as a result of any nuclear incident uh whereas you have more people that have died as a result of solar or wind farm uh issues which is insane to say the least but even that idea of the fuel issue in nuclear plants you can store that fuel on site and secondly as the technology increases or as we uh research further into the technology we're also finding ways to re-enrich spent fuel so that fuel can then be recycled in the same plant and the 
the quote is that a Coke can sized of uh, uranium is enough to power it for my lifetime, for me. And we've got more than a few Coke cans going about. We can power yeah, the planet. Absolutely. The France does it really well. I mean, if you look at France, they're, they reprocess something like 80%. And some of it goes to the medical industry because radioisotopes are really important on the medical industry. And that means they don't have to go and mine them themselves. Some of it gets reprocessed back into into high energy fuel that can be remade into rods. Um, but there's always going to be some waste. But yeah. a, lot, a lot of this comes from the irrational fear of radiation that comes from what we call the linear no threshold model. The linear no threshold model means that any exposure to something bad is bad. So the argument would be that if you go outside and lay naked in the sun for 12 hours, because that's going to be really bad and burn you like crazy, then going outside for five minutes and getting some sun is also bad. Okay. Right? We know that the linear no threshold model doesn't actually work. In fact, low dose exposure to things that would harm you like the sun's rays are actually healthy. That's vitamin D increase, it, low dosage exposure to a lot of bacteria and things are actually healthy. This is why a lot of epidemiologists would argue don't use antibacterial soap because you want to keep this low dose flora and fauna, your fauna on your, on your, uh, on your body and on your, your skin. Body. Yeah, because it helps to actually ward off the bad stuff. And so unfortunately, it's the fossil fuel industry that pushed this linear no threshold model back in the day because they were worried that nuclear energy was going to supplant them. And it's still become the standard today. So in the US, we still use the linear no threshold model when we plan nuclear power plants, which means that a plant that would cost on the order of one to five billion costs, you know, 20 to $50 billion, because they have to take all of these extra regulatory uh, precautions, when we, we protect nuclear workers at a plant more than we protect us on an airplane where we get something like, you know, a, a, a year's uh, worth of exposure. Radiation, yeah, yeah the x-ray thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Again, another insane little factoid that's often missed. But then if we look at the footprint of a nuclear power plant and the amount of energy it produces... And, okay, the argument that can be made of, hey, that nuclear power plant is massive. To produce the same amount of energy from, be it a wind farm or from a solar farm, you're also going to destroy massive amounts of land. And you've already mentioned you know, destroying a fox's habitat. But at this point, if we're trying to create through renewables, classic renewables such as uh, wind and solar, we're going to be destroying more than just the fox's habitat, right? Absolutely. And to put it in perspective, so in the UK, their largest power plant is Hinkley Point C. And this is a, a large nuclear power plant. It's, its ecological footprint is on the order of 450 acres. To produce the same amount of power with wind and solar, would take on the order of 100,000 to 200,000 acres. So we're almost talking about a thousand time increase in the ecological footprint than we are talking about nuclear energy. And again, this is carbon free. There's nothing coming out except steam, but we'll have to deal with things like waste and, and safety regulations. But if, if the goal is carbon free energy for 8 billion people 
and having it on demand and reliable, I don't see an option besides nuclear for the, or at least for the base load. And what you mentioned there about the base load is really important. And for people to realize that is to do the bare minimum for what we need. That isn't factoring in maybe at four o'clock on a Friday, there's going to be a lot of people plugging in what is now an electric car, or you know, there might be demands, increases in power. If I don't know, Super Bowl Sunday, everyone's got their TV on all these things, or there's a sudden heat wave and we need more energy to power AC units. But you mentioned something there um, that you've mentioned a few times throughout uh, our chat, a car- the notion of carbon-free. This also, uh, not that you're feeding into that idea, but when this is put through by our politicians, by the talking heads in uh, legacy media, this notion that carbon is bad, or carbon dioxide, I should say, is bad for the planet. It- is there much of a muchness there or is there something to be said about positives uh, as a result of an increase in carbon dioxide? I don't know, like maybe a greener planet, if that's a thing. It's absolutely a thing. Um, so NASA has confirmed with their satellites multiple times that something on the order of 22% of the planet is greening right now. Um, there's There's been a, a large CO2 fertilization that has happened, but you know, CO2 is also a greenhouse gas, so it does add to to temperatures in the atmospheres. We have to weigh those benefits. I think one thing that the IPCC does very poorly is to even be open to the greening of the planet, the increase in crop yields that are directly related to, to the amount of CO2. The fact that CO2 is so low now that we allow minor orbital forces called Milankovitch cycles to plunge us into ice ages every 10,000 years or so, and they last for something like 50 to 80,000 years. I, I, you know, there's a lot of talk that this is somehow an optimal climate and that we have to keep things stable. I don't see that as this is being an optimal climate. I think there's a lot of lack, or there's a big lack of discussion in terms of the positives that come out from CO2 fertilization. And you know, this is something that nobody wants to talk about because CO2 has been painted in this, you know, devil's light where it's the ultimate pollutant. You mentioned there an increase in crop yields. Um, is that something that we can directly attribute to the increase in carbon dioxide? No, it's probably not monocausal, but um, it's, it has to do with increase in fertilization, increase in the way that we, you know, work the land. Um, production machines that help to increase uh, uh, the yield we can get per hectare. But we've done laboratory experiments that show that CO2 fertilization does increase the yield of things like grains and cereals. Um, and so there's that's part of the, the, the factor. But you know, with anything with climate, it's never monocausal, it's complex, there's a lot of things adding to it. But just about a decade ago was the first time ever that humans have decoupled the amount of food that we produce to the amount of land that we use. And so we're actually using less land, but producing more food. And that's never happened in the history of human civilization. I think that's a really amazing thing because we can have a smaller impact on the planet, but still feed the 8 billion people on the planet that keeps growing. I did not know that. That is fascinating. Um, 
would there be a negative impact to us further decreasing the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? Yeah, there's a, there is a lower limit that we think somewhere on the order of 180 ppm in the atmosphere is going to be the, what we call the death zone. And so that would be enough where plants would be stressed enough that they wouldn't produce seeds and spores. And within a few generations, you would, you would see things dying out. It's never happened in the Phanerozoic the last 550 million years. So we don't really know what the effects would be, but in the last few thousand years, we're, we're really in a, a few million years. We're in one of the lowest atmospheric CO2s that we've ever been in with life on the planet. One thing that we do know, and this is probably something that you will have done in your work, is that when we had the megafauna on the planet, that was when CO2 levels were at some of its highest, right? So when trees and, and animals and everything was at its largest, if we think of dinosaurs, etc., that was big CO2 times, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, what we where we find most of our coal deposits, so that here in Alabama we have a lot of coal. Um, you know, most of the coal deposits that we find are on the order of something like 350 million years old. And that's a time period called the Carboniferous, and the Carboniferous is named that because there was so much carbon in the in the rock layers that we see, and these real big carbon deposits. Once they get squished a little, we call those coal, and at that time period, 350 million years ago, the average atmospheric CO2 was something like 1600 ppm. So four times what we see today, you know, and so uh, the argument that plants couldn't survive or are, are being stressed at the atmospheric CO2 that we have today, I, I, I don't think that really holds any water if we look back in geologic history. Yeah, I mean... There is some pretty strong evidence there that it was uh, very, very possible and, in fact, thriving. So if you're saying it was four times as high back then, what evidence is there for our work here in increasing that carbon footprint for the, for the human-made element of, of climate change? Is there any proper solid evidence that we can look to that shows unequivocally, hey, we are you know, having a really bad effect here? So I, I wouldn't say bad, but I think that we okay. have really strong evidence that we are raising the atmospheric CO2 levels. So we can look at the carbon isotopes, um, the 13 and 12 ratio, and it does appear that human burning of fossil fuels is changing the atmospheric CO2 carbon isotope ratio. So that means that we are contributing to the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. It's difficult to tease out how much is coming from natural emissions and how much is coming from human emissions, anthropogenic emissions. That's a little bit of a trickier story, but I think it's it would be unequivocal that human burning of fossil fuels is adding to the overall atmospheric CO2 concentration. I argue that whether or not that's a bad thing, and obviously there's never a there's always going to be some bad consequences, but if we weigh them with positive outlook and positive consequences as well, or positive outcomes, you know, it, that's a, that, that, that story gets a little bit more tricky, but I, I think that with carbon isotopes, we're, we're safe to say that we are increasing the atmospheric CO2 concentration. Interesting. Cause 
if we look at um, Henry's law talking about the uh, gases both above and below are liquids what happened during the 2008 financial crisis and also during COVID when the world went into standstill and human CO2 production decreased uh, that's been noted as during the 2008 crisis decreased by 50% so it's 50% man-made CO2 yet CO2 levels continue to rise and and the reason I say that's interesting is could it not be argued then that yes the ratios are changing as a result of human-made uh, burning of uh, hydrocarbon fuels however even if we weren't releasing that captured carbon that the carbon would be released by the world's oceans anyway as we'd seen both during 2008 and during 2020 when the world went into standstill so could it not be argued then that we would see this rise in co2 or the rise in co2 but we're not particularly seeing that rise we're seeing the change in the isotopes just because we're the ones releasing it rather than the ocean and it would be rising anyway do you see what yes. i'm saying yeah absolutely so this is um this is where it gets very tricky in deciphering between anthropogenic and natural causes so like you said henry's law has two kind of parts to it so there is the partial pressure of the gas above the liquid, and if that partial pressure increases, more gas should go into the liquid. Yep. This is the argument that um, the oceans are acidifying, right? And so we're seeing that we're increasing the partial pressure by increasing the parts per million in the atmospheric CO2, and that's, that's pushing more CO2 into the oceans. The counter argument is that Henry's law also has a temperature dependence, that if you warm the liquid, with the gas dissolved that more of that gas leaves and we can actually see that in the geologic record and the ice core record that it tends to be that temperature rises about a few centuries before the co2 rises and the argument is that's evidence of henry's law and the oceans get warmer and they emit co2 back into the atmosphere the counter argument is that well now that we're releasing some co2 that wouldn't have normally been trapped we're raising that temperature and so I argue, well, you can't do both. You can't have the oceans warming and also absorbing CO2, because to me that violates Henry's law. The temperature dependence is greater than the partial pressure dependence. So this is where it gets very tricky in terms of deciphering how much of the 150 ppm or so that we've seen in the last century and a half we can attribute to anthropogenic means and how much goes to um, to natural means. And the majority of the heat in the ocean actually comes from the, 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 the seafloor, from the mid-ocean ridges, the divergent plate boundaries where we have magma coming up. And so it's very difficult for us to estimate the amount of heat flow that comes into the oceans. We have huge numbers there uh, in terms of variation. And so whether or not there's been a slight increase in that amount of heat flow, and that's been letting uh you know co2 emit into the atmosphere the co2 ratio of the oceans and the atmosphere is the same so we wouldn't ever be able to see that in terms of the 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 carbon ratios that i was talking about earlier so this is where it gets very tricky i, I think that if we do the mass balance in terms of the amount of fossil fuels we've burned we have to be adding some um, that just seems like it's crazy if we're not 
I, de I doubt very highly that the 150 ppm increase is 100% anthropogenic. Um, you know, it's difficult to put a number on that. And this is where these assumptions come in by the IPCC and other folks. And like you said, I, I have a nice uh, a diagram where I show the monthly mean being measured at Mauna Loa for CO2. And in the months of COVID, right at the shutdowns in 20, early 2020, you saw no change at all. And, you know, if you, if you think about the entire carbon footprint, we're only about 4% of the total emissions, right? The argument is that if, oh, if you keep increasing 4% year to year, you start to see this slow, this slow, this slow uh, uh, movement up. But that what that means is if we just shut down fossil fuels tomorrow, we're not gonna see any effect for quite a while, you know? And so this idea that, especially what you see in the media, that this hurricane is directly related to climate change. And if we just stop using fossil fuels, this hurricane wouldn't happen. It's crazy because that clearly does, they don't understand the residence time of CO2 in the atmosphere. They don't understand that we're a very small amount of the natural cycle. And so, you know, this is a, it's a reductionist view of a really complex system that is really about policy. I mean, you know, let's, the truth is this has nothing to do with saving the planet or changing the climate or stopping a hurricane. This has everything to do with policymakers and money and power. Why? Simple question. Because certain groups like the UN and the WEF have invested a huge amount of money in terms of renewables, primarily wind and solar, and they realize that fear is a wonderful way to get people to change behaviors and to instill policy that would usually take decades in a much shorter amount of time weaponized fear absolutely too. it's yeah. I, I would call it terrorism that's I'd the agree. definition it's, it's that's to the an definition. ideological goal right that's right inducing fear to an ideological goal and causing terror on a populace um primarily um, young young people so if the goal of this is less to do with saving the planet and more to do with lining someone's pocket okay who are the players then that are doing this Let, let's start there and then we can talk about what what can we do this is the the top of the top i mean these are the elites of the elites right this is the 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 wef this is the the the, the highest billionaires around that have been investing in these technologies and were essentially cut out of the fossil fuels because they got their wealth later and realized that energy is essentially the biggest place to make your billions is there's there's one thing that everyone on the planet needs and they need more of and that's energy and you know this is this is global elites this is educated high class folks that feel they have a noble cause to do this. And if they make a little extra money on the side by, you know, stoking some fear and getting it done sooner, then so be it. There's that famous Henry Kissinger quote of who controls the food supply, controls the people, who controls the energy, can control whole continents, and then who controls money, can control the world. And it's funny, as all three of those topics, both 
the food, the uh, energy, and the money are all things that can adequately be placed within the discussion and appropriately uh, be placed in the discussion of, of climate. And, you know, if you look at someone like Al Gore, who said that uh, the UK would be underwater by 2016 if we don't stop our carbon emissions tomorrow. And this was back in the year 2000 when he lost to Bush. I think the UK is doing all right, to be honest. They had a heat wave uh, not too long ago. So they're not uh, they're not underwater just yet. Um, he's made tens of millions off of this. If you look at the amount of money, again, we can see what the World Economic Forum are investing into and, and other businesses and the like and where Bill Gates is putting his money and where he said that things should be going, who is a massive, massive global investor, be it in the farm industry, in the energy industry, or you know, money. What is it that we can do then to to change things to put things on a bit of a different track that that you can see because i'm not able to change policy yeah i think you hit the nail right on the head that the climate is a catch-all i mean it it encompasses everything right it's it's something that you can blame for anything and it involves it involves the money it involves control of information it involves propaganda i mean it involves control of land control of agriculture it really is this catch-all that they have and it's remarkable i mean it's brilliant you know i wish i would have thought of it somehow myself in in some other way but any weather event can be blamed on climate change if it rains too much it's climate change if it doesn't rain enough it's climate change if it's cold now it's climate change because the jet stream's unstable if it's too hot well clearly that's climate change if it snows too much if it snows too little and it so it's like goldilocks and the free bears they just yeah, there's a just famous right, it's just not it, it, right that's right there's a famous saying that if a theory explains everything does it explain anything and you know but this is this is a brilliant idea to essentially push policy right and the way that it's going to change is that people start getting hit in the pocketbook you're seeing it in the in europe now where people are paying more they're not seeing all the catastrophes happen but they're realize that they're paying more for food their energy bills are way high mm -hmm. they're getting tired of always being told that everything is terrible because their kids are having mental health issues. And I think that the whole narrative itself will self implode because if you just cry wolf a million different times, people start to ignore you. But if you keep crying wolf and they have to pay for you to not, you know, to, to keep crying wolf, they're going to make you shut up. And so I think as you start to see energy prices increase, food prices increase, unfortunately, like with everything, it comes down to money. And when the common folk are starting to be hit with these higher costs and they're not feeling all the negative effects that they claimed were going to happen, they're going to start to really call this stuff out. I think it's happening pretty quickly, actually, right now. The U.S. just invested $8 billion into a new fossil fuel project. The Willow Project in Alaska. Uh, there's a new report from the EU that says they're going to be shifting away from their green subsidies because they just can't afford it anymore. 
Um, the UK is firing up old coal power fired power plants. So is Germany. And so Germany is the know, biggest joke because they shut down their bloody nuclear power. Absolutely. That's the one that pisses and, me off the most. You know, it's, it's everything ebbs and flows, right? And I think these people are well-intentioned. I think they, they want a, a, a healthy planet. I get it. But if you just basically make your people suffer by not having reliable energy, that doesn't really change anything. And if you just start to import all your energy from other countries that actually do it worse, they have less environmental uh, you know, protections, they have less human right protections, are you really helping the planet by just outsourcing this stuff to poor kids in other countries? And then you pat yourself on the back, right? To say, look at, we've lowered our emissions. So I think the change is coming. I think it's coming actually pretty quickly. And it's coming because of prices it's going to come because of food prices because of energy prices and you know salaries aren't going up nearly as fast as the cost of of food and energy and once it really starts to hit the the common person in the pocketbook i think that their tone is going to change pretty quickly i hope so i'm looking forward to seeing that well tell me about the farmers winning recently quite a few political seats yeah, yeah. So they've won nine seats versus the, I think, uh, the Faith of Day, the uh, Mark Ritter's um, party, uh, won eight. So they managed to displace them. The Faith of Day also lost uh, a fair few voters to other parties. Um, and the, the thing with that is um, the leader of the BBB, uh, so it's the Farmers for Citizens Citizenship Movement, uh, is what it translates to. She is an ex-member of Mark Rutter's party, and uh, I was speaking to someone um, last night uh, for another episode of the podcast, a fellow called Michael Yon. He's a, a war correspondent. I don't know if you're familiar with his work at all. No, uh, he's he's been steeped in this kind of stuff and looking at global famines and and obviously wars and all the rest of it for for decades. And he's over here in the Netherlands and went down to the protests over at the weekend and knows a fair few politicians as well. So he's been speaking to them. And one of the things that he mentioned is he gets the impression that this is a bit more of a red herring, and the reason for that is. It sounds really good, but they don't really stand for much. And actually, they are agreeing that nitrogen is an issue. And it looks like they're giving way to some similar ideas. It also looks like they're quite malleable to the ideas that the Faith of Day will put forward. So it looked at first glance like this was a proper win for the people, but when you read into what the policy is of said party, it's not much different than what is already going on and what is already happening. And I was talking to someone about this today. BBB is their slogan uh, or, or their name rather. And what you'd see on the little signposts, you know how it goes when politicians are running, they put their little flags everywhere and their uh, fences and whatnot. And it was BB better. BB better sounds a lot like something that was being said uh, for a long period of time. And it's almost like a joke. It's almost like they're laughing at you with the Bill Bat better, right? And I saw that 
And then what Michael was saying last night on the podcast as well, I was gobsmacked. Um, myself and my wife uh, were voting for a different party, uh, the Forum for Democracy. Um, or, well, my wife, I'm not eligible to vote yet. I still need to get my Dutch citizenship. Um, however, we were both ecstatic to see that BBB did so well. And then there was this realization of, oh shit, it might not be all it's cracked up to be. So it's going to be a bit of a waiting game. Uh, all that to say, it's going to be a bit of a waiting game to see which policies they actually enact and just how much of a presence they form and whether or not they are going to be a thorn in the side of the current powers that be, or if they're just going to be a controlled opposition to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's tough, right? I mean, sometimes you get in there and you don't want to just burn bridges right away. Maybe you yeah. got to play the game for a little bit, but it's been real inspirational here in the U S to see it because, um, but if they are know, truly working for the farmers, then there should be no give on the nitrogen nitrogen issue because that's the one yeah. that's shutting down the farms. That's the one that's right. had the government outright take 3,000 farms away and work That's to right. shut down 50% of farms by 2030. That is seven years from now where you're going to lose 50% of that production. And what you said earlier on in the podcast of, hey guys, for the first time, we've managed to decouple from the amount of land that we're using and the amount of food that we're producing. And the Dutch farmers are pretty damn good at what they do. Um, so it's 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 a scary thought to think that the people that everyone thought should be fighting for the farmers actually have agreed already that there's a problem there which is the thing that the farmers are fighting against so yeah and i can yeah, guarantee no, I, I, you that you won't see a 50 percent decrease in the amount of food intake in the netherlands and so no. all that is just outsourced to places that do it worse yeah. and ruin the environment worse and then you have to ship that food into yep. the Netherlands, which costs more, has a bigger footprint. And so this is part of this outsourcing of all of this material, you know, all of this production. And then we try to tell ourselves that we're doing something to help save the planet. This is where, and I don't know what your political leanings are. Um, this is where I was a fan of Trump's idea of bringing things back home and doing things back in the US, bringing back manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I've spoken to people about this in the UK as well. They shut down all of their production. They don't produce anything in the UK anymore. If everything goes crypto, what is the banking sector in the UK going to be worth really if the banking sector is one of the biggest inputs into the economy? If you're not producing anything, how are you going to be worth anything at the moment? Again, uh, not to bang on Trump, 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 but uh, what he said to Germany uh, a few years, I think it was in 2017, 2018, of you guys are too dependent on Russia. If something and happens, they laughed and they screwed. laughed at him. Laughed in his face. And actually it turns out that he was a bit early, but by 2022, he was bang on the money. Um, what, five years early? Oopsie daisy. His, his uh, watch must have been set a few hours forward. But with all of that said, you also mentioned about crop yields and whatnot, droughts and rain. And if it's too much rain, it's climate change. If it's not enough rain, it's climate change. If it's this, it's that. It's, and the thing of if one theory explains everything, does it explain anything? How familiar are you with geoengineering? 
Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with it. Um, you know, I think that it, it's, it's definitely something doable on a local scale. Um, I'm very skeptical on the idea that it can have global impacts. Um, China's been trying the most out of anyone. They actually just tried their largest efforts in the last few years, and they didn't really do very well. Is but this we the definitely, snow one? Or? This is, no, this was to try to end the drought in an area that was um, west of Beijing. Um, it's definitely true that if we put aerosols into atmosphere that is very vapor rich and close to the dew point where water condenses, where, where water vapor condenses back to a liquid, that seeding that area with, because the hardest, the energy, the, hard, the, the biggest energy hump for droplets to form is the nucleation, the very first tiny little bit of droplet to form. That's the hard part. Once you actually have that, it's relatively easy for water vapor to stick onto that and to condense into a vapor. Like maybe you have a cold glass on a warm day, you get all that condensation on the outside. That, that initial surface is really important. And so we can seed clouds with things like sulfurs and silvers and aluminums. And those are tiny particles that will act as the nucleation surface. But you know, if we think about the circulation of the atmosphere, you'd essentially have to keep doing this consistently and constantly. Um, but for local bits and local effects, um, I think it's doable. I think the Chinese were pretty successful during the Beijing Olympics to reduce a lot of the smog. They, they actually succeeded in making some quite a bit of rainfall in the week prior. And usually that will bring out the smog out of the atmosphere. Um, but I, I just don't see it as any sort of solution to any global scale issues. And I, I, I worry with unforeseen consequences of messing with the atmosphere. You already hear people talking about aluminum and silver, you know, collecting in soils and things like that. And so um, I'm, I'm very hesitant about it. I, I understand that it's research that should be done and maybe there'll be a huge breakthrough, but um, it's something that I, would argue against at the moment, but I support, you know, exploring it and, and doing the research. So um, do you hear about China making it snow? I just a very, a little bit. I didn't actually read much okay. about it. So um, again, on the geoengineering thing, for, for those that are unfamiliar, the idea of geoengineering is kind of exactly what it sounds like on the tin. It's engineering weather um and potentially weather patterns if it can be done well enough what china did and you can look this up this was reported on in uh, mainstream outlets cnn fox bbc you name it uh they made it snow one year and then they made it snow i think shortly after the first time they made it snow however because of the chemical composition that they used it essentially turned into slick almost like someone had put fairy liquid over everywhere everything so the reason that they stopped doing that despite the fact that it was a success in the first instance was because of the damage that it caused uh, the collateral damage as a result of that slick that they formed then if we look at somewhere like dubai dubai does uh, geoengineering absolutely regularly again this is a, a known accepted fact and one of the big things of, of why i brought it up is it's in use well we, we know it's in use but i feel like it's something that can be used to 
produce negative effects. And you already said you're scared of the consequences. Now, you spoke about congressional hearings. There have been congressional hearings going back to the 70s and 80s on geoengineering and essentially uh, saying everything but we're actively doing it however we've got the patents for it and we know what effects are and there's even been a fellow appearing on a ted talk talking about it um one of the oh gosh i forget where he's from um but someone talking about what will happen when we actively do it and when quizzed on what are the downsides of spraying aluminium uh into the air aerosolizing it um uh, we don't really know mm, it was kind of this idea we don't really care but why i bring it up is the element of it can be used for a negative it can be used to cause droughts and cloud bursting and and these sorts of things so part of these weather phenomena that we are having in fact it's not Gaddafi, but it was someone from one of those uh african countries who said on the floor of the un uh uh, drought is being caused by uh, the US. So I, I see it as a total potential negative. I agree. It can definitely be weaponized, just like any technology, right? Nuclear is a great example. Great amount of power, but can be weaponized. Yeah. I think that the amount of geoengineering you would have to do to cause a drought in a country like Libya, you would essentially have to have plane gigantic planes flying constantly over a certain area whichever the way the moisture moves over libya right and the goal would be that you would make it rain out prior to that moisture reaching the land surface and so that air would now be dry as it comes into there and you could essentially cause a drought but you would essentially have to be doing that non-stop all the time the amount of uh, aluminum or silver or sulfur you would have to use would be enormous um, the amount of planes you would have to use would be remarkable. The amount of infrastructure you'd have to have just to keep landing and flying these planes. This is something that you just can't do without folks seeing. I think it can be localized, like you said, cloudbursts. Um, you know, that would take maybe three planes and you can make a cloudburst, but we're talking about maybe five, 10 square kilometers, right? We're not talking country sized areas. Um, and so I just, I don't see it at the moment that the technology is feasible on the large scale, but the goal is to figure it out and scale it up. And so, yeah. um, you know, um, it's, I, I, I'm nervous about it, but I don't yeah. see it as something that's global at the moment. Fair. Have you got any last bits that, um, you'd like to leave the listeners with maybe some uh positives to look forward to for people or things that they can do to try to reframe the discussion and, and get yeah out of i mean i think mindset. i think that if you if you start to objectively look at the data you know i think that there's no questions about oh, oh, oh the planet's warming up i think that co2 is rising but we need to start thinking about the human condition and human flourishing and if you really can separate yourself from the cat catastrophic models and just see what the objective data is today, um, and that, that's going to change day to day. But if you look at it today, I would argue there's very few metrics that you should be that, that would fit into an idea of an emergency or a crisis. I think there's a lot to be 
positive about. There's going to be challenges in the future. And by no means should we not face those challenges and be thinking about those challenges. But we should also be telling young people that there's a lot of bright future in there and, you know, for them. And they should be excited about a planet that's going to be even better than it was for us. And, um, you know, try to remove the negativity from this whole picture because that's a terrible way to motivate people to, to be good stewards of the planet. So, you know, admit that there's going to be challenges, but focus on the positives, focus on how you can make a little small effort in those challenges. Um, you know, that's a lot easier said than done in the Western world because we have that ability where we can go buy reusable bags and, and, and say, I don't want to use plastic bags. I brought my own. And, you know, somebody that's concentrating on getting their drinking water for the day doesn't have that privilege, but, you know, do the little things that make you better stewards of the planet. But at the same time, be hopeful because our future's bright. Humans are amazingly ingenuitive and, you know, the climate's going to be challenging in the future, but it's not something we can't overcome. And, and it's not something we won't overcome. Well, at least that's something bright to look forward to as well. Thank you. Really appreciate your time, Matthew. Uh, and uh, I hope you have a great rest of your day and the rest of your spring break as well. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Sonny. I appreciate it. Thank Cheers. you.